three, two, one. Welcome back to Podcast Noor. I'm your host, Noor Al-Hudat Ajuri. And today's episode was actually a live podcast recording that we did virtually during the month of Ramadan. So here at At Your Service, we love to host in-person and virtual events. And for this year's virtual iftar dinner, we had people from all over the world come together to break fast and enjoy a live podcast recording with Dr. Butch Ware. This conversation is very spiritual and it is his specific perspective on spirituality and the questions that I had for him. And I learned so much. There were so many times where I was broken wide open. We get into things like the difference between the mind and the heart and how to engage your heart as your thinking organ. We talk about how for a lot of people who claim to be practicing a specific religion or faith tradition, their religion actually is capitalism. Hmm. We go into how to find your spiritual guides or your spiritual teachers. I even dare ask the question, who do you think the devil really is? Rather than like, what is the devil actually? Like, what is the idea of the devil? What does it actually represent? He also talks to us about the weaponization of God and how sometimes parents use God as a weapon in their toolbox to try to control and get their kids to obey them. And in that sentiment, he actually also talks about how in his learnings, he found that there really is no such thing as a Muslim child. And you can replace Muslim with any sort of faith tradition, but the power in that message is a really, really important one. So please listen intently when we talk about it, because I think it's one that I know I benefited from, and I think it could do a lot of healing for others. So like I said, deeply spiritual conversation, and I'm so happy that a lot of you have been sharing with me that you've been enjoying these spiritual conversations, because I am very openly on this journey myself asking these really big questions. So without further ado, here is Dr. Butch Ware. Oh, and also... This is a live event, so we did have a Q&A portion. You'll hear me reference the Q&A portion, but I did not keep it for this podcast recording because it was just way too long. So next time, I guess you'll just have to be there at the event. So check out at AYS or AYS.media to stay in the loop of the events that we are throwing. Um, there's plenty of gems and good stuff in this episode, so you're not going to miss out on anything. But without further ado, for real this time, here is Dr. Butch Ware. Just started the audio on my end as well, Adam, and I think we can start letting people in. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm running my recording now just to make sure that I don't ac- accidentally lose any of the session. So I just started the um, audio recording on this. Uh, good evening. Happy Iftar. Happy Sahur. Happy wherever you all are. Um, Welcome, welcome, welcome to this year's, is this our third or like fourth virtual if thought? I don't know, but um, I know I see some familiar names already. If you are joining, if you could change your name to your name and your location so that we can see where you are on the planet. It's the third. Okay. Thank you, Malika. <laughs> I'm like, I fasting brain. It's fine. Um, This year we're doing things a little bit differently, which is we are recording a virtual 
podcast live for the first time. And there isn't anybody on the planet that I would rather be doing with this with than our guest today. Oh, that's not good. I'm going to turn that on. Do not disturb. Um, so I'll let you all continue coming in. You are welcome to keep your camera on. I'll, I'll let you all know how this is going to go today, inshallah. So Dr. Butchware and I are going to have um, our conversation, our interview, and then we're going to be having a community town hall. Now, we were thinking about what the best way to do this is, and um, I think that it is... I kind of like this idea and let me know how you guys feel of the community town hall. Instead of it being breakout groups, um, we kind of make it a part of the episode of the podcast. So if you all have questions or you have comments on the conversation that we have, then you just keep your hand raised. And then at the end of the conversation, um, I will the floor will be yours. And you can share whatever your question is, and it'll just be more of an interactive conversation than um, your typical standard. So we welcome your videos on. I know that a lot of you may be eating. Maybe some of you are up in the middle of the night. I see Amira in the Philippines is here. Our OG AYS Iftar uh, person. And um, I know that you are up at certain hours of the night. And we love and appreciate that so dearly, but your camera is still on and we love to see it. So we're, um, we're so happy that you all are here and um, we're going to get started. So cool. Okay. Ah, I'm so excited. Uh, you, you all, this conversation, not only is this conversation like a long time coming, but it's a conversation that uh, Dr. Ware and I have actually been really preparing for, which is not something I tend to do too much with my interviews. Like, it's not that I don't prepare, but I don't typically talk to the person that I'm going to be interviewing uh, frequently or often right before an interview, because I want to kind of save all of the gems for the actual conversation. But the reason that this was a little bit different is because the intention of this conversation and the subject matter of this conversation is... Um, one that is very deeply personal to me in this moment right now. And as a lot of you know, who have been a part of the rep journey and just been a part of that, your service community, um, I've been on this very big internal spiritual journey of just having the courage to ask bigger questions about who we are and why we are alive, who God is, and how is it that we really get to connect to God? And um, what are the things that maybe we need to unlearn from uh, how we were taught about God and how do we approach those relationships and experiences now from this place of love. So I'll keep that as the intention of why I wanted to have Dr. Ware on for our podcast, Noor. Um, she can see the art somewhere back there, both of the podcast arts. Um, cool. Okay. So we'll have this conversation and then we're going to open it up to a community town hall. So you can either uh, submit questions that like to me in the chat, or you can keep your hand raised and that way you get to, um, you get to specifically ask the question yourself. So it's your voice, but if you're shy and you don't feel like doing that, you don't have to, it's all good. All right. Dr. Bilal Butch Ware. In the flesh and virtually. Yeah. Can I do like a little intro? Do you prefer to introduce yourself or should can I? No, absolutely. I just, 
in the flesh. We're Bismillah. so excited. Bismillah. Okay. So Dr. Ware is a historian of Africa and Islam. He earned his PhD in 2004 at the University of Pennsylvania, where he trained in African history, African-American history, and Islamic intellectual history. His research spans the last thousand years centering on West Africa while reaching into the Mediterranean lands of Islam and the Atlantic worlds of the African diaspora. He's currently teaching at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He serves as the associate professor in the Department of History. He's published two major books, which we will link in the chat, The Walking Quran, Islamic Education, Embodied Knowledge, and History in West Africa, and the book Jihad of the Pen, The Sufi Literature of West Africa, which I'm very excited to talk about. He has spent a lot of time in West Africa and particularly Senegal. And I'm very excited about this because um, just yesterday he was sharing with me some of the stories of his time in Senegal that really blew my mind. There are currently two classes that Dr. Ware is offering that you can have access to, and I'm definitely excited to dig into them. The first one is called The Miseducation of the Muslim. And the second one is a four-week course that he's going to be kicking off soon called The Shahada of the Spirit. I could go on and on, and his bio is very lengthy. And if you want to do all that research yourself, you can. But I don't want to waste a single second more because I would love to get this started by kicking it off with the question, our favorite entry question, as you all know. Dr. Ware, how is your heart doing today? Uh, alhamdulillah, my, my, my heart is doing um, well. Um, the art of rhetoric often um, tells you not to answer a question with a question, um, but I'm going to answer your question with a question. Um, rather than, you know, like, how is your heart? The first question that I always ask people is, what is your heart? Mm. Right. And the reason is, is that like... Um, in the Islamic West African understandings that I've written about and researched, one of the first things that was pointed out to me was that um, there's not a mention of the mind in the Quran at all. Um, the thing that does the intellection and understanding in the Quran is the heart. So there's 132 times that the heart is mentioned in the Quran as Qalb or Qulub, um, 44 times as Sadr or Sudur, 16 times as Fu'ad, so almost 200 references to the heart. Not a single time does the word mind appear in the Quran. So the, na the verb akala, the verb akala appears, but the noun akal doesn't ever appear. So intellection and understanding appears in the Quran, but the thing that does the intellection and the understanding is the heart. So when I answer the question, how is my heart? Like, I'm not just talking about how I'm feeling or my emotions, but also like the state of my understanding, the state of my spiritual insight, you know, where my head is at in a, in a Western sense. Mm -hmm. So my head is in a good place. Um, you know, my heart is in a good place. I'm enjoying, um, you know, the, the beginning of these last, you know, 10 days of Ramadan. Um, so my heart, my heart is good in all of its senses, you know, emotional, spiritual um, and intellectual. Alhamdulillah. Mm, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I want to dig a little bit deeper into um, 
into the fact that the mind is never mentioned in the Quran. It's just yeah, that, that usually that. blows people's I'm hearts like, wait, for lack of a better. Wait, <laughs> of a better. It, yes. it messes people all up um, to, to hear that. Literally yeah. not a single not a single mention. Well, it's interesting because um, I've been thinking about the heart a lot lately. And my dad, who is a doctor, him and I were having this like philosophical conversation. And he, you know, he sees people's insides every single day. <laughs> And he kind of posed this question to me a couple of weeks ago of like, what's the big deal about the heart? Like as an organ, like why is it that we're always referring to the heart, the heart, the heart? And so I would love for you to speak to the, you know, this physical organ that pumps blood in our bodies. Why is it that this is where so much of the healing or so many of our answers that we're looking for is embedded? What? And you've referred to this as like the mountain of the heart. And I would love for you to speak to that. Okay, so the first place to start is with a divine saying. So this is not coming straight from the Quran. This is a Hadith Qudsi. So this is uh, the way to think about Hadith Qudsi. These are holy sayings where the where God gives permission to the Prophet, peace be upon him, to paraphrase how he wants to express a word that God has written on his heart. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not verbatim speech the way that the Quran is. So in this uh, Hadith Qudsi, the prophet, peace be upon him, said, neither my heavens nor my earth contain me, but I'm contained in the heart of my believing servant. OK, that there's nothing in the creation that is capable of um, holding the divine essence, <laughs> even for a moment, except for the human heart. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the Quran says, had we sent this uh, Quran down upon a mountain, you would have seen it fall and rent asunder by fear of God. Moses, when he goes to the mountain in Surah Al-Araf, he says, um, God, show yourself that I might gaze upon you. And God says to him, um, you shall not see me, but gaze upon the mountain. If it stays in place, then you will see me. And God manifested himself to the mountain and the mountain crumbled and Moses swooned. So why am I saying all of this? Because the slightest divine manifestation in this universe would shatter mountains. It would split the earth in half, but a human heart can contain unveilings of the divine essence. So the human heart is this um, incredibly important central organ. It is the beginning of us. Now, it also just happens that recently Western researchers have determined that actually the heart develops its neurocardiological system before the brain does. The heart literally starts thinking first in the human being. But we didn't need to get that confirmation because every single traditional indigenous society, almost without exception, uh, locates intellection, understanding, but also emotion and spiritual insight in the heart. So when you translate from ancient Chinese texts, the word that's translated as mind is always heart. When uh, you translate from ancient Egyptian texts, the words that translate as, as mind is always heart. Now, the ancient Egyptians used the heart as the center of emotional understanding and analytical reasoning, even though they had observed um, through brain injuries that the left hemisphere of the brain controls the right side of the body and vice versa. So they knew about a physiological organ called the brain, but they didn't ascribe uh, um, attributes to a purely fictional faculty called the mind. I'll often say to people, uh, show me your mind. Go ahead. The people that are on the screen right now, show me your mind. 
Everybody usually does this, right? And I'll say, that's your brain that you're thinking of. You're thinking of a physiological, physical organ that exists inside your body. But the mind isn't that. The mind is a concept. It's an abstract concept that emerges out of Greek folk thought and gets operationalized by people like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And then European imperialism exports it to every corner of the world. And we behave as though this is a real thing. Right. Um, whereas uh, indigenous understandings, Islamic understandings tell us to literally think and feel with the same organ. No head heart divide where the head is masculine and analytical and the heart is the seat of passions and emotions and women and people of color get carried away with their, their passions. And then a white male someplace has to put them in order using his analytical reasoning faculties. Right. All of this is completely absent from a sound understanding. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the a, a beginning word about the role of the heart. How do you personally engage with your heart as your thinking organ? Yeah. So in, in the uh, as a historian. Right. So as somebody that's trained fundamentally as a historian, there's an ayah in Surah Al-Hud, the Quran's 11th chapter, 120th verse, um, where God says, um, indeed, all that we relate to you in tales of the previous prophets with it, we fortify your heart. This is this is what God says in the Quran. Fascinating because it explains the function of history and the function of narrative, the function of telling our story, engaging our story, listening to stories, hearing stories is that uh, God also says in the, the Quran. Indeed, we relate to you um, the best of stories. Um, in what we reveal to you of this Quran. So God tells the best stories, right? And then God also tells us that the stories are there to fortify our hearts. They're there to strengthen our understanding. They're there to provide emotional solace and encouragement, but they're also there to open us up to spiritual insight because the heart is not just a physical organ, but it's a metaphysical organ. It's an organ that connects us with the unseen through that mechanism that God speaks about in that that holy saying that literally the divine essence itself can be witnessed and seen. That's actually the course Shahada of the spirit that, that, that yeah, is you know, upcoming. There's four principles, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's built on, on a, um, a teaching schema that comes from Shay Ahmed Ubamba, who was one of the most brilliant scholars in the history of Islam. And unfortunately, um, because of the way that anti-black racism functions in the Muslim community, most people have never heard of him. <laughs> um, yeah. He is the author of at least 200 distinct books in the Arabic language, some of them collections of as many as 200 poems praising the prophet, peace be upon him. And some of those poems containing as many as 5,000 lines of verse. So he's one of history's most prodigious scholars and poets written in all of the different fields of the Islamic religious sciences. And when he wrote all of those massive volumes, um, he was writing in his third language, Arabic. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, he makes Shakespeare look like an absolute hack, you know, um, but because he's black and Muslim, the world doesn't know much about him. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, 
even beyond the brilliant, you know, kind of penetrating analysis and beautiful poetry that he that he wrote, he had a set of oral teachings that he transmitted just to disciples from mouth to ear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he would say about um, about um, divine unveilings, experiential unveilings of God, this kind of spiritual witnessing. He would say, certainly we have secrets about these things, but we would never be so careless as to leave them between the pages of a book where just anyone might come across them. In other Mm. words, real sacred knowledge is communicated from breast to breast, right? Mm. It's, Mm. it's a light. Uh, Imam Malik said this, he said, he said, knowledge is a light that God casts into the breast of whosoever he wills. It is not the accumulation of many facts. Can you repeat that, please? (laughs) Knowledge is a light Mm. that God casts into the breast of whosoever he wills. It is not the accumulation of many facts. Well, Okay. I'm glad I asked that. Yeah, because what we treat as um, knowledge, things that are merely data, um, at best information, but certainly not light, (laughs) right? Right, Um, right. So... So, so Bamba, when it came to transmitting these like, you know, deeper spiritual meanings, that was from, from, you know, teacher to disciple, you know, uh, breast to breast. So four principal enemies, right? And this goes to something that a lot of the Sufis, a lot of the Islamic spiritual specialists, a lot of the the mystics, the heart doctors literally is how they were often referred (laughs) um, to, is that literally as the heart doctors, right? Not in a cardiology sense, but in a metaphysical, you know, uh, sense of your heart. So a lot of the heart doctors had pointed out, um, Ghazali, for example, in Ihya Lumadin talks about the four principal enemies of um, spiritual realization, um, you know, Hakika, you know, witnessing um, mm-hmm. reality it are the nafs, the ego or the lower soul, the shaitan, the devil, the force of evil, the hawa, the passions or the caprices, and the dunya, material attachments. Now, Bamba, um, studying this, you know, schema and all of the things that the great Sufis had to say about this, he, he, you know, being the, you know, brilliant, you know, sort of teacher that he was, he reduced them to a mnemonic device by taking the first letter of each word and he made it nashhadu, we bear witness. <laughs> we bear witness that the nafs, shaitan, hawa, and dunya are the principal obstacles along the path. Wow. Right. So then it creates this schema of how you approach your own spiritual growth. First, the jihad enoughs. First, the struggle against our base instincts, our ingrained patterns of behavior, our egos, especially. Right. Um, then. Um, well, I, let me I could I could stop there, but let me just say this. Then yeah, you yeah. take on the, the force of evil because the. To be honest, until a person engages in a struggle against their own ego, um, then really the shaitan doesn't have to expend a lot of energy on them. Uh, you're your own devil <laughs> until you learn to struggle against your nafs. And the devil has limited resources, right? He is not, as he gets depicted in Hollywood and in some kind of Christian representations, a god of hell the way that God is the god of heaven, right? He's just a, a, a jinn that the Quran repeatedly describes as da'if, as weak, he can only fight you with weapons that you give him. So because he's weak and has limited resources, he can't expend a bunch of resources on everybody. So he lets us chase our tails when our ego is in this unredeemed state. But as soon as we start to take seriously this war against our nafs, this war against our lower soul and ego, that's when the shayateen be coming after us. 
That's when they come in guns ablazing. And there are shayateen, there are devils, the Quran makes this clear, amongst the jinn and amongst the human beings. In other words, there are spiritual forces that are malevolent, but also human forces that are malevolent. Right. Mm. And you're going to get hit with both of them as soon as you start to try to walk this path of growth. I'll summarize and then and then let and, and then make room for you to get back in. The um, passions or the caprices are the, the, the next one. Um, and this is where we learn to grapple with emotional incontinence. Can you define that, please? The inability to control excessive detrimental outbursts of emotion when our anger consumes us so that we tear down everything around us Mm. when we you know find ourselves so steeped in self-pity that we're unable to rise out of bed Mm. right when we lose the capacity to discern between self-reproach, which is good, and self-doubt, which is paralyzing. It's because our emotions have become a welter for us that overwhelm us and don't give us distinctions that allow us to move forward along the path. So um, the, the, the passions or the caprices are one of the principal, um, you know, obstacles. I'll go back just to go forward. The principal treatment for an attack from the ego, the lower soul is as it happens fasting, which we're engaged in during the month of Ramadan, because it's a terrible heart doctor, right? That gives you a diagnosis, but no remedy. So Bamba gives you the way to diagnose, but then he also gives you the remedy. So the, 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 the lower soul or the ego, when it comes after you, you fast. And that's a big part of what the month of Ramadan is about. It's about purification of our soul so that the word can come down on our hearts. Then the shayateen, the shayateen, um, he said, Bamba said about the attacks from these devils in the world and in the metaphysical world. He said, never forget that the devil is only a dog set upon you by a master. When attacked by a dog, only a fool yells at the dog. A wise person calls out for help from the master. Now, what did he mean? The devil doesn't have any power except what he has been permitted to hold for a certain amount of time, which means he is playing exactly the role in creation that God always knew he would. Because when the devil fell, God was not surprised. (laughs) So the reason why he exists is to put this external antagonist into our life so that we will call on God. So the remedy to an attack from the shayateen is dhikr calling on God by those beautiful names, Mm. making it a regular practice. The passions are the next one in the sequence. And the treating treatment of the, the emotional incontinence is fasting from speech. Now, why? Because when have you ever been carried away with your emotions, except that it was your tongue that carried you there? <laughs> I see I see the sisters like, ooh, that would hit. That would I'm like, <laughs> I'm like unable to speak. <laughs> so 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 the, the, when have you ever been carried away with your emotions except that it was your tongue that carried you there, right? If if we were, were fortunate enough to be to be married, we know it's that one last thing that we had to say that leaves us sleeping on our prayer mat for the night instead of in our comfortable <laughs> bed. Right. <laughs> Can I get a witness? You know, like, like this. 
I mean, so, so I learned this lesson the hard, the hard way. So the, the point of the, the fast for, from speech is it teaches you what words are really for, which is not to just constantly vent in an undisciplined way, the contents of your heart without you learn how precious they are when you undertake one of the two fasts in the the Quran and both of the fasts in the Quran are in Surah Maryam. Um, The Mary um, has a fast from speech of one day and Zachary has a fast from speech of three days, both in the same chapter of the Quran. Mm -hmm. So the Sufi people would often prescribe a fasting from speech of one or three days. In other words, literally a vow of silence for a limited and amount of time mm-hmm. where the only words you would use would be dhikr or salawat sending blessings upon the prophet peace be upon him and when you enter into that state you just realize how many of our words are wasted um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they become precious when you when you need them and you realize their impact and you also realize how many of them are, are really patently unnecessary they don't draw us closer to God. They don't draw us closer to our fellow human beings. They just mm-hmm. essentially allow us to, to, to vent in an undisciplined way the contents of our nafs, which goes back to a saying of the prophet, peace be upon him, when he, he returned from the battle of Badr and he said, we return from the lesser jihad to the greater jihad. And, you know, people who had just fought for their lives against the enemy much, many times uh, their number, you know, said, well, what could be a greater jihad than that? And he said it was to struggle against your nafs and hawa, against your lower soul and against your passions. This Mm -hmm. is the real struggle. Last one is the dunya, material attachments. And in the world that we live in, a capitalist world that is driven by consumerism, wherein the truth of the matter is, especially in my religious community, the Muslim religious community, I'm just gonna be blunt about this. The, what passes for mainstream normative Islam, um, the truth is, is that capitalism is their religion, Islam is their ritual observance. Hi there, Noor here from At Your Service. At Your Service is a storytelling company. We tell stories as a form of service. And the way I think about it is story first, medium second. Meaning we don't think, hey, I really want to produce a podcast. What should it be about? No, we think of it as we have a story we want to tell. What is the best medium, the best way to tell it? Maybe it is a podcast. Maybe it's a documentary series, a virtual talk, a speaker series, a dinner party. Maybe it's a book club. The list goes on and on. We also love being of service to companies and brands and nonprofits to help them tell the best story possible so that they can serve their audience and their communities. So if you want to check out more of our work, you can do so at ays.media. You can also find the transcripts for all our podcast episodes right there. And if you're enjoying this podcast right now, it would mean so much to me if you could leave a review and give us some feedback. Let us know if you like this style of podcast or if you're looking for something else. And of course, if you have any stories you'd like to pitch for us, you can do that through our website as well. As always, at your service. Can you repeat that? <laughs> Capitalism is their religion. Islam is their ritual observance. Can you describe word, what that could look like? Yeah. Yes. So, so 
Your deen, your religion, according to the Quran, is the ordering system that orients your reality and provides for you your values. Correct? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it is the guiding set of practices, ideas, and morals that give you your center as a human being. And the, the main um, dean for contemporary Muslims, especially in North America, is capitalism. Islam is their ritual observance. It's the thing that is slotted for their religion, but it ain't their dean. <laughs> How would that show up in people's life? Because I know, I, I think that that's like a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. It might be like, a I know, and I'll be spending thing. a lot of hard pills. People, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's I not know. all sunshine and roses when you get, you know, when you really start, you know, reflecting on the, the, the way to bring the path into being in this day and age. But like, what's the yeah. aha moment that you had with that? Like, what was the thing where you were like, oh, wait a minute, there's a pattern here. What is the pattern? Wasn't hard for me because, you know, I, I, you know, am the son of a locksmith with a sixth grade education. My mother was a teenage mother, you know, had me when she was 15. Her high school guidance counselor told her to have, have an abortion before I was born. Um, I didn't live at the same street address for a calendar year until I was nine years old. So when I see that our mosques are essentially country clubs that are largely unwelcoming places for black people and for women. Um, you know, when I see that the sunnah that really matters the most to people is middle class respectability and conspicuous consumption, it's not hard for me to recognize that capitalism is the religion that's, that, that's guiding them. Um, and there's... <laughs> There's a there's so much that could be said about that, but I'll just say this yeah, is yeah, that yeah. I, so I, I converted to Islam when I was 15. OK, mm -hmm. and I often tell people that I would have converted when I was seven or eight if any of y'all had come to my house with a hot meal on any of the nights that we were hungry. But you didn't come then and you're not going now because you're busy trying to convert Tom and Becky and the top of the society. OK, and you're not coming to where I live or where I lived or where I grew up. And if you had done that, then instead of memorizing every single rap song that came out between 1982 and 1998, I would have memorized Quran by the time I was 11 or 12. Um, probably I would have memorized both. But the point <laughs> the point is, <laughs> is that is that our priorities are askew as a community because and it's a basic violation of prophetic methodology because all of the prophets, peace be upon them all, always targeted their call to the poor and the meek in the society. And it is the only thing that the prophet, peace be upon him, that's the only thing that he was ever reproached for by God in the Quran. Um, he frowned and turned away when a disabled impoverished man was pulling at his coat while he was speaking to one of the wealthy and powerful in the society with the hopes that this, if he could just get a few powerful patrons mm -hmm. to take up this message. And he didn't, he didn't say a harsh word to the man. He didn't dismiss him. Peace be upon him. He just frowned. <laughs> and God said, mm -mm. <laughs> Think about back to Surah Tuhud, right? Noah is with, with his people. And, and they say to Noah, they say, um, the ones that follow you are nothing but the poorest and weakest amongst us. And indeed, we think you are a liar. That's what they say to him. 
And his response a little bit later in the surah is to say, who would protect me from God if I were to shoo them away? So the real religion is about bringing nourishment to the hungry, you know, um, abundance to the impoverished. It's about bringing justice and goodness into the world. And that is not our dean right now. Mm-hmm. It is a lot of, you know, performative piety. <laughs> um, it is a lot of judgmental, um, classist, racist, and misogynistic nonsense. Um, and it reveals the extent to which, to go back to Bamba's scheme, Naf Shaitan Hawadunya, that the real God that many in our community are obeying is this worldly life. That's what they worship accumulation. Mm. But at first, I just want to say thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing um, a little bit about your own origin story. I can feel that sentiment. I also have been thinking a lot about this uh, story that you shared with me yesterday about um, is there such thing as a Muslim child? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so I would love to, to go from that story that was so touching and deep in your heart to the story of the Senegalese shiuch. So I came to, to, to Islam after I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. So I, I had learned about Islam through hip hop lyrics. Uh, let me just be clear yeah. about that. That's the yeah. first introduction that I had. You know, I self law mm-hmm. master, I-S-L-A-M, arm to the leg, a leg, arm, head, Allah, right? <laughs> you know, so there was a yeah. lot of, you know, nation of Islam, five percenter and Sunni lingo that was just threaded into the bars that I grew up with. So, mm-hmm. you know, people were pointing me in that direction. When I read the biography of Malcolm X. I read it cover to cover in one night and I wanted what Malcolm had at the end of that book. Mm-hmm. Right. So I went to my school library and I checked out an English translation of the Quran and I read that cover to cover the next night. And then I went to sleep and uh, slept through and missed my school bus the next day um, because I had been up for two, two consecutive nights. And I told Whoa. my mom after I got up, I said, I'm Muslim. Right. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this is I was 15 years old, didn't really know any Muslims personally. I mean, except for a few bowtie and bean pie brothers, but I didn't know them well, you know. So so all of this is to say that that I came to Islam without really having a lot of contact with Muslims. And with Mm -hmm. God as my witness, it was contact with Muslims that almost cost me my Islam. Mm. So Mm. the reason why I mention it is it wasn't until I went to Senegal as a 20 year old, 21 year old, that they started to put back together my heart and give me a sound understanding that was rooted in the principles of teachers like Shay Ahmed Ubamba. Because I saw an Islam that wasn't about performative identity. It wasn't about, you know, nihilistic consumption. It was just about being a good person, helping your neighbor. Um, you know, I saw the most decent human beings that I had ever encountered under circumstances that were objectively poorer than the way that I had grown up. Mm. Right. So 
All of that's to say is that then I just realized that I needed to be re-educated on everything about being a human being from these people who are infinitely more civilized than anybody that I had ever come to know. So long story short, I end up, you know, going back to Senegal um, to do dissertation research after I, you know, go to graduate school because I, I just had just decided that I wanted to keep going to this place for the rest of my life and somebody else needed to pay for it because I didn't have any money. <laughs> so, so, so graduate school, you know, and, and, and hey, you know, like it's, it's still a good gig for me, right? The academic thing has turned out to be to be a beautiful a beautiful thing so uh, to get to your story so I'm writing what becomes my first book, The Walking Quran, and it's the history of Islamic education. So I'm interviewing people that grew up in Quran schools, being socialized into this way of being from early childhood. Right. And, you know, me being an interviewer, you know, you 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 know this as an interviewer, um, you know, I would have a more or less standard set of questions that I wanted to ask. But, you know, you're always ready to take the interview in whatever direction it needs to go. So one of the questions that I would always ask is what's the best way to raise a Muslim child? Because. Senegal is grappling with the legacy of colonial schooling, French education. Right. There's, you know, kind of, um, you know, Wahhabi or Salafi inspired, quote unquote, reformist education that doesn't have a lot of purchase in Senegal, but it is present. Um, and then there's kind of, you know, traditional Quran schooling. So, you know, just kind of way into the topic, you know, what's the best way to educate, you know, a Muslim child? And I was told this many times, not just by Shuyuk, but literally by 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 men, by women all different categories in addition to, to, to religious scholars, they would say to me in response, there's no such thing as a Muslim child. And I'm looking at them like, huh? Like and then they would say- Multiple people said this to you. Multiple people said it. I heard it at least a half so dozen times. So like it was like a very, it was a common thing. It was an established mind. And I, I did about a hundred hours of oral history interviews, but this came up at least a half dozen times in those interviews. And here was the, the formulation that, that they would that they would use. They would say there's no such thing as a Muslim child, which in Wolof means that's the child of a Muslim. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they say that's the child of a Muslim. And then they would elaborate in one turn of phrase or another to say that every individual child is going to have to come to their relationship with God. The job of a Muslim parent isn't to raise a Muslim child. It is to be an example of what it is to be a Muslim. Your job is to set an example for them and give them access to the Quran. And that's it. Because you are not responsible for their soul. You cannot, you know, shield them from what is to come on the day of judgment. They have to decide that submission is for them. And thinking that it is something that you are going to inherit in a hereditary fashion or that it is going to be simply transmitted through culture is the best way to break the thing and make sure that it never provides benefit to anyone. And, and how many of us, right? This isn't the case for me as a, as a convert, but I've heard, you know, from so many quote unquote born Muslims, right? That the way that, that Islam was made manifest in their family lives drove them away from the religion because it essentially became something that, you know, God became just another weapon in their parents' toolkit, right? <laughs> a way to keep them in line or to get them to, to behave a certain way. Um, yep. And it becomes instrumentalized. Whereas mm -hmm. what I saw over and over again was people who were fully self-confident in the moral soundness, therefore no insecurity complex about mm -hmm. what real Islam was. So therefore mm -hmm. they didn't have a lot of, you know, identity driven 
um, anxieties about mm-hmm. their children being exposed to other kinds of cultural influences, because ultimately mm-hmm. they understood that like your job is to show them, not tell them, and then to give them access to, 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 to the word, open the Quran up for them. And what's fascinating is that the, the person who I consider today to be probably the greatest living exemplar of this West African teaching tradition is a man named uh, Imam Fore Drame. Um, he's from Gambia. He's based in Vancouver now, just incredibly brilliant classic classically trained scholar um you know and just one of these people who you when you meet him you realize okay i'm in the presence of somebody whose spiritual station is like you know um you know <laughs> this this is what it's you know like to be around you know truly righteous people so having a conversation on this related theme not about childhood education but about spiritual training right the how you move people through these stages get them through the obstacles so that they reach these spiritual realizations and he said bilal in the end he said the roles of a sheikh or sheikha are only two and so I'm, I'm immediately thinking, I need a pen, but, <laughs> but write this down. He said, there are only two. He said, help a person return to their fitra mm. and then help them establish a relationship with the word. Now, the fitra, this innate, natural sound disposition that the human being is born with, mm-hmm. this is what our indulgences of our nafs takes us away from over the course of our lives. We get further and further away from who we really are. Mm-hmm. So all a, a guide really does is help a person remember who they really are, where they were before they came down to this place, what the nature of their mission really is, and not just in an abstract sense, right? Because the Quran teaches us why we're here, but it doesn't teach you why you're here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God is going to have to teach you why you're here. You're going to have to seek that out and have God tell you why he made you. What is the purpose that he wrote specifically just for you? And that's not an obligation that you can throw back onto the Quran. Right. Because the Quran tells you to go do it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. The Quran tells you to to establish this relationship. But there's also this notion, too, I think that a lot of like and this is why I'm, I'm so obsessed with learning this from you about the West African tradition, because I think it's so different, especially when you're American Muslim, where there's this like this like very tight grip on like rules and regulations and like this notion of like right versus wrong. And and th- this it's, it feels like very limiting and that there's almost like if you like only a certain, only certain scholars or only certain people have access to truly what God is telling you instead of being like, you know, taught that God speaks to us directly too, as if like you can only, you have to do certain things or be a type of way or be righteous enough to, to receive, like to understand the word of God. But to me, it was just like, but God's voice and word and guidance is accessible to everybody. Everybody in this room right now, listen to me very, very carefully on this particular point. Okay. Knowing God and drawing near to God is your birthright as the child of Eve. Mm. It is your birthright as the child of Eve. It is there for every single human being to claim. And anyone that tells you otherwise is manipulating knowledge or religion in order to try to control you. Mm -hmm. 
the time of revelation, according to an Islamic understanding, is closed with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. But the time for divine inspiration is never ending and ongoing. The mm. Prophet himself, peace be upon him, he said, after I'm gone, nothing will be left of nubuwa, of prophethood, except for the mubashirat, the glad tidings. They said, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of God, what are these glad tidings? And he said, they are the true visions of the righteous. What does that In mean? In other words, it means the dreams and the visions that hit our hearts, whether in uh, our sleep or in waking states, when we've removed the clutter of those obstacles. And then the spirit can just convey the word to our heart in truth and it flattens us. God mm. speaks to us on the mountain of our heart the way that he spoke to Moses on the mount and we fall, mm -hmm. die before you die. <laughs> swoon the way that Moses swooned when God made himself manifest. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole nother world, another plane of existence on the other side of that witnessing. But in order to get there, you have to clear through all the detritus, all the rubble that you've made of your own life. And let's be blunt about this, that the world has made of you because the oppressors out there in the world have harmed us. Mm -hmm distorted us, pulled us away from our nature. And they did it in many cases on purpose, knowing that it would cripple us, knowing that it would keep us from fulfilling our full potential. But we cannot let them win because the basic argument of the Quran from the way that I read it as a 15 year old to the way that I read it today has not changed. The way that I understood that book then is the way that I understood it now, which is that it is a book that is designed to teach human beings how to free themselves of every internal and external oppressor. The, the people of God in the Quran are not just staying up at night praying. They're not just fighting their inner struggle. Every single one of those tales of the prophets that's mentioned right in the Quran, the people of God are at the forefront of fighting the fundamental injustice of their age. Every single one. Because that's what makes them the people of God. Mm. I want to get a show of hands, whether it's on camera or through the little reaction button, but like a show of hands, if you related to this last like 10 minute of the <laughs> conversation of just, okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. We have like 80 people in here and almost every single time. Like, no, it's good, time. To <laughs> it's good. It's good to check in. But, but ju just so you know, I'm sending out a signal to every heart that's in the virtual room and yeah. waiting for the word to come back before I so much as open my mouth. So I, no. I know they're with us. <laughs> I know they're with us. No, I know. I just, I mean, I needed to see that show of hands myself because I feel like every time I speak based on a personal experience. I just want to be like, hey, wait, guys, am I the only one or is it all of us? And I, I love Fatima's face because she's like cheesing so hard. She's like, no, we, it's like, that's why we're all here. Well, when was the first time you ever felt properly represented in media? Properly represented? I still don't feel properly represented. Hey, I'm Noor Tagori and I've been telling stories my entire life. For my new podcast rep, I've spent years examining a more personal story, 
about how the misrepresentation of Muslims and media has impacted American society. I thought I knew the story because I thought I knew my story. But the more I looked for singular, clear answers, the more questions I had. Our story guides include academics, artists, actors, and we bounce around through American history and culture, witness our present and future unfold, and then we find out how these stories affect all of us. Welcome to Rep. Expression is a space in the heart that is unleashed and let free. It runs wild. Listen to Rep on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Wow. Thank you so much. I think that it's, um, it, it, what I feel right now is how is this curiosity that I've been having lately around how we, I find that in faith communities and specifically because of my own experience, like the Muslim one, there's a lot of talking about the past. There's a lot of just Mm -hmm. like focusing on history. And we're always like referring to like the past and the stories of the past and the stories of the past. And I don't always see or fully like under um, witness kind of like the integration to how it relates to us. So even when we're talking about like things like social justice or misogyny or the, the issues of our time that we have today and you're, and this is, I mean, one of the reasons why you're here is because you're one of the few people that I see who's actually actively vocal in, in calling this stuff out and also providing resources and ways to move forward and to actually heal. But do you sense, or is this just me, but do you sense this like feeling of stuckness that we may have in religious and spiritual and faith communities today? Yes. And, and here's my diagnosis of it. Okay. Okay. Is that Mm -hmm. fundamentally the paths of spiritual evolution and social justice have been growing apart from one another. Right. Mm. Um, So that increasingly people tend to think of spirituality as something that is individual and personal and private and about the cultivation and realization of inner states. And we have these really, really what's the word, influential um, kind of new age spiritual movements, which are, I'm just going to be blunt about this, profoundly selfish, profoundly selfish, because for the most part, they are rooted just in individual self-liberation, right? Mm -hmm. They don't actually have a social justice component. Um, And for the most part, they actually also deceive people in a fundamental way, which is that they usually promote some kind of self-help. And what I didn't say about the nuffs in the first one is, yes, that the way that you treat an acute attack from your ego or lower soul is with fasting. But the first thing that every person needs to do in order to, to come to terms with their nuffs, their lower soul, is to get a guide. And the reason for that is that... Um, uh, the way they say it in East Africa is the, the is the most elegant way. Even the sharpest knife can't carve its own handle. Mm, mm-hmm. If the instrument that is broken is you, how can you use a broken instrument to repair itself? 
So how does one go about obtaining a guide? Or right. So, the, so, and this is the, the fundamental problem because now we have so many people who pretend to play this role or have material interest yeah. in, you know, in, in playing this role or, you know, uh, Sufi Tariqa's distrust in all of this too. Because and like, and rightfully had... so, because, because there's spiritual abuse, there's sexual abuse, there's every single kind of illness that you can find amongst the children of Adam and Eve in these so-called spiritual communities without any question. And let me just be clear about this is uh, the, the West African scholars that I studied with a f- one or two exceptions are unequivocal in their uh, stating that Sufism, the path of spiritual purification is incumbent upon every single person of faith, period. It's required. But what's not required is that you necessarily belong to an order, a Sufi Tariqa. Everybody, though, needs a teacher or a guide because you can't get out of the prison of yourself by yourself. Everybody has to have a teacher. Somebody that has been set free by somebody else has to to reach in and help you get out. And that may be a sheikh, it may be a sheikha, it may be a spiritually, you know, enlightened, you know, relative, loved one. Um, there are cer- certain circumstances where that role is played by different people for different points along the journey. But the point of the matter is, is that the, the, the thing that human beings are most practiced in is self-deception. And if you try to serve as the guide for your own liberation from the cell of your ego, you're going to find that your ego just constructed a wall while you were looking away. And it told you that you were free so that you wouldn't perceive the new walls that it's constructed. As soon as you, you know, you encounter someone who is actually capable of liberating you from that prison, your nafs gets nervous. And when I tell people when they're looking for, you know, for, for a guide is one, I tell women, look for female guides, you know, um, Look for female guides. It's important. There are men that I trust and believe in, and I'll recommend you know those to certain people. But it's but especially for people that have been through you know difficult experiences, and so many of the sisters in our, our community have been subjected to spiritual abuse and or you know sexual abuse. Yeah. So first, uh, you know, like safety first, S- safety first. But what I tell people is, is that when you find your guide. They're going to be somebody that has beneficial knowledge of the path. Okay. They're going to be somebody that carries themselves with good character. And then there's going to be these other uh, things. The four principal parts of the human being, according to the Quran, ready? Heart, <laughs> nafs, soul, ruh, spirit, uh, just, uh, just some or just a physical body. These are the four main parts of the human being that are mentioned in the Quran. So the way that this functions in my experience and also, you know, according to the teachers that I've, you know, uh, studied with is that when you find your guide, your body should feel safe. Your spirit should feel safe. Your heart should feel safe and your nafs should be nervous. <laughs> because it, because its reign of terror is threatened the 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 parable of the nafs the ego in the quran is pharaoh the pharaoh that tormented moses and pharaoh is the one that says i am your lord god most high worship none but me 
And that's the role of the unredeemed ego inside the human being. That mm. tyrant has to be toppled. And this is the relationship that people are missing now, is that there is meant to be a dialectic relationship between internal liberation and external liberation. It's not supposed to be something that's selfish and a plunge just into your own ego and constantly reliving your own trauma. It's meant to be a means of healing so that you can become an instrument of human liberation. It's not meant for you to sit up on the mountain. Where, where would we be if Moses didn't come down from the mount? Where would we be if the prophet, peace be upon him, had just stayed in the cave? The, there's supposed to be a relationship of spiritual unveilings and connectedness that renews our heart, invigorates our spirit. And then we pour out this blessing and benefit by providing service to the only thing that God ever says that he loves in the Quran, which is the human being. Every single Allah Yuhib in the Quran, every single time God says God loves, the object of the verb to love is a human being. So that means that if we say that we love God, then we have to put ourselves in the service of human liberation. And that means first and foremost, it's not just providing benefit, because the first thing that you do before you provide benefit is to end unnecessary harm. You have to stop the oppressors. The prophet, peace be upon him, said, help your brother, whether he is oppressed or oppressor. And they looked at him. They said, messenger of God, we know how to help somebody who's oppressed. But how do we help somebody who's an oppressor? He said, stop them from oppressing. Oof. Mm. Mm. So we have we have an activist sphere that acts independent of any kind of moral, ethical, or spiritual center. Mm -hmm. Everything goes because it's ultimately about each group's individual identity politics being validated in public space. And the only thing that can ever happen then is coalition building between different identity groups that want validation and power. Most are not in that space interested in justice. They are interested in power. Hmm. So bringing back together the path of internal and external liberation like that, I, I I wake up every morning thinking, how am I going to be an instrument in that affair today? That's a beautiful question that you ask yourself every morning. It's similar to I. There's a, the question that I ask myself every day is like, what is the role that I'm playing in the in the in the problem that is painting me today? Because it really does start. <laughs> That's heat, though. <laughs> it was. I mean, honestly, accountability, you know, man. I mean, it's true. Because the first and the first time that that question hit me so hard that I like I didn't. I was feeling a pain that I had never felt before, and I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't know what to do, and I realized at the very end of the the bout of pain and just getting it out 
that the only thing that was left to do is ask, what is the role that I'm playing in this? And that was when the murder and the killing of Mahsa Amini happened in Iran. Mm. And I... May God accept her as a martyr. Um, I mean, by the so-called morality police. And there was just like this shift, this fundamental shift that happened inside of me. And I was just like, wait, I know the morality police. Like they exist like in our families, in our communities, like right around, like they don't, they're not just armed and badged, they're here. And so like, if this is paining me so much about something that happened to a woman in a country I've never been to, then what is the role that you're playing to protect and stand up for the women who you know, who have gone through experiences on that spectrum of violence because of how they choose to cover or not choose to cover. And this is something I'm still contending with, but it's just like this thing that happens when you begin to ask yourself, what is the role that you are playing in social injustice? Because that there, it, we can sit here and we can point fingers and we can be like, there's no compulsion in religion. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're bad. They're this, they're that. And then we can try to bury away what's happening to other people, but there is nothing for us to do at all, ever, in any issue, but turn to ourselves and ask, what is the role we play in this? The 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 there's a saying amongst the the Sufi people: the the seeker is the one that when they see a fault in another one of the children of Adam, they rectify it in themselves. Mm. Right. Oh wow, <laughs> so, that's comforting. <laughs> and and and. It, it, it takes, I sped past this earlier, but I'll slow down to come back to it because it's a really, really important distinction that many of us, um, including myself, um, have difficulty um, with, which is the distinction between self-reproach and self-doubt. Okay. Yeah, let's so unpack that. Self-scrutiny or self-reproach is what you're practicing when you say, what's the role that I play? Mm-hmm. In producing this self-doubt is what comes when you say, you know, I'm just as guilty. <laughs> um, this is, you know, a, a problem that can't be fixed. It's the difference between um, I'm not getting it done and I'm not worthy. Right. And the way that I try to understand this within my own soul is that. I know the difference between self-reproach and self-doubt by the fruit of them, which is that self-reproach propels me forward and causes me to take action, whereas self-doubt paralyzes me and causes me to, to fear that I can't affect the change, right? And that self-reproach is one of these excellent characteristics of people of divine remembrance, right? Is that we, we measure our own good deeds, we weigh them lightly <laughs> and our, you know, shortcomings, we weigh them heavily so that we don't get complacent and comfortable with ourselves so that we, you know, move forward. This is an excellent, you know, trait. It's an excellent characteristic, but it can very easily shade into self-flagellation yeah. and, and yeah. self-doubt. And self-doubt is always a trick from the shaitan, always a trick from the shaitan, because it causes you to, you know, become inactive. It causes mm -hmm. you to become fearful. It ends your struggle. Mm 
right? Um, and the, the shaitan is always looking for ways to get us to relent in our efforts of self-realization. So the self-reproach, we're going to constantly, you know, have the negative self-talk that will come in and will start to pull us towards self-doubt. And as soon as we start to feel our inertia, let me say that again, our momentum slowing, right? Um, then that's when we redouble our dhikr because we realize that the, dev the devil's trying to play this trick on me, right? Because yes, it is really, really difficult to, to, to face up to the oppressors in this world. Yeah. And it's difficult even to face up to our own demons, right? Moses, peace be upon him, killed a man. So deep was his grief over what had been done to his people, that when he saw one of his people fighting with one of Pharaoh's people, he intervened and with a single blow, all the grief and pain that was in, inside him came out and he took a life. Imagine having to carry the grief, not only of having all of the boys killed just to try to keep you from ever being born. And then on top of that, you take a life. But if God could heal Moses and make him an instrument of liberation for humanity and a lasting lesson for all humanity, then he can free you too. Whatever your suffering, mm. Mm. whatever you. was done to you and whatever your own hand has done, is it worse than what was done to Moses? Mm. Is it worse than what Moses' own hand had done? Mm. Mm. Wow. Thank you for that. Hi there. I want to share with you a good deed opportunity. At ICU Foundation, we work to alleviate local homelessness and directly serve community members in need. We do this through our community pantry, family food bags, hygiene kits, snack bags, winter care packages, and grocery gift cards. Lately, we've been seeing incredible impact by partnering with businesses and organizations to host volunteer events where their teams make and distribute the ICU care bags. ICU is our response to a community member who, when we asked what she needed most, responded with, we just need to be seen. So if you would like to join us in seeing and serving the community, email us at contact at isyfoundation.org. Okay, back to the show. Earlier, when you mentioned the devil or the shaitan, you did comma, a force of evil or mm. the force of evil. Mm -hmm. And that immediately pulled me out of the characterization that I have of the quote unquote devil. And mm -hmm. I felt it and I saw it more as almost like an energy force. This like, yes. almost like this, just like this mode of darkness. So I would love for you to just like, for people who are, you know, they, they check none on the box of religious and spiritual. And when they hear the devil, they're like, but what? This, what, is, this is, is this is an incredibly powerful question. And, and people that are here, you know, um, in your space, you know, all the time, um, like already know, um, you know, the sensitive, thoughtful interviewer you are. I'm just learning because this is a really, really, really perfect spot on central question. Wow. So, <laughs> alhamdulillah. So it takes us 
into the deep end of the pool. Because if you understand the inner meanings in the Quran stories, there's really, really profound lessons. So first, who is the devil? What is the devil according to the Quran? Yeah. Important rectification that the Quran gives over the Judeo-Christian version of the story. In the Judeo-Christian version of the story, the devil is a fallen angel. Yes, okay. correct. In the Quranic version, he is a jinn. So this is an important distinction. Right. Angels are beings that are made of light. Mm -hmm. Jinn are beings that are made of, as the Quran describes it, fire without smoke. Now, what is fire without smoke? If not energy, it's a kind of energy. <laughs> right. These are energy beings. Right. That's properly right. speaking what jinn are. But they mm. are energy beings that have individual personalities and characteristics the same way that we as human beings do. And moreover, they share another important, crucial identifying characteristic with us as human beings, which is that jinn and human beings are the only things in an Islamic conception that have free will. The only two things in creation that have free will. And indeed, there's a verse in the Quran that alludes to this when God says, indeed, I created jinn and mankind for no other. Let me make that non-sexist jinn and humanity for no other reason except that they would worship me. Now, what is meant by this? Because at that point in time, we're already told, we're told that the stars prostrate for God, that the heavens worship God, that everything is in perfect obedience, per perfect worship, that there are angels engaged in unending praise of the creator of the, he of the heavens and the earth before Jinn are made. And then it's a long time after Jinn are made that people are made. So then why is God saying, I right. created these two things to worship me? And it's to distinguish their service from the other categories of creation, which obey because they have to. Whereas Jinn and human beings have the choice whether to turn towards God or to turn to away from God. Now, this is connected. I'm going to come back to Iblis, but the yeah. metaphysics of this are really deep no. if we yeah. reflect on them. It's connected to this fact that every single Allah Yuhib, every single God loves that comes in the Quran is followed by a direct object that refers to human beings. So I'll ask a rhetorical question that I ask of my students all the time. Could you really love a thing if it was forced to obey you? If it had no choice in the matter? If you had a beautiful, fully conjugally functioning mm -hmm. Japanese robot. <laughs> would you love it the way that you love an actual spouse? Or would that reveal something awful about you? Oof. That you right. love <laughs> this projection of your own force and will and domination mm, this projection and that's the thing is like when we try to force people into things we are trying to contort them into our projection of them and then it's never it, it's never real love and it's never enough and there's always still this disconnect 
and, and nor why, because what God is actually modeling when he says, now think about this. He says of yeah. the human being. So how does God create? God creates in the Quran through speech. When God wants to decree a matter, he has only to say unto a thing, be, and it is. But that's not precisely how God makes the human being. God says that he makes the human being with his own hand and breathes of his own breath into the frame of Adam in order to animate him. So what God says to Iblis in Surah Al-Sad, 38th chapter, 75th verse, he says to Iblis, why did you not bow to that which I made with my own hands? And Iblis says, I'm better than him. You made me from fire. You made him from clay. This is so deep. Because Iblis reveals himself in this moment as the first racist in the cosmological history of the Quran. He's the first thing that has ever been made that says that it is better than something else that God made because of its lineage, origin, and its bodily composition. And he takes himself out of the ranks of the angels where he was allowed to stay in company, despite the fact that he was not of their same nature. And this is what gets him cast out. So when he's cast out, he immediately goes to work trying to get us to see one another with the same contempt that he has for the species as a whole. Bingo. Divide and conquer 101. Where do you think the imperialists learned it from, if not the devil? And listen, when, when the Nation of Islam said that, that, you know, all white people were devils, that's not technically correct from an Islamic standpoint. But if you don't understand that white supremacy is devilry, then you don't understand Islam. Right. That is, that is the devil's actual religion. The devil's actual religion that's is, wow. and I'm better than him. That's the devil's religion. Don't go That's looking for wild. it, you know, with, with wow. pagan symbols and stars and goat sacrifices. No, God says that the devil is your manifest enemy. That means he's out in the open. He is infused into every single one of our societal structures. So he is a real ontological reality, but how does he function? He whispers and he's got whisperers that are amongst the, the creatures of free will, jinn or human, that have mm. turned away from the light and given themselves over to the darkness. Now, we all turn away from the light and indulge in sin. The, every single one of the children of Adam is a sinner. The prophet, peace be upon him, told us that. So this isn't about sin. Sin doesn't make you a devil. There was a man that was making ear uh, dua with an earshot of the prophet, peace be upon him. And he said, oh, Allah, make us a people without sin. Remove all sin from us. Take sin away from us. And the prophet, peace be upon him, heard him and said, stop making that dua. And the, the man said, why? I thought sin was bad and we're supposed to struggle against sin and try to get rid of it. He said, yes, yeah, sin is bad and you're supposed to struggle against it. But if we were ever to become a people without sin, God would wipe the earth clean of us and replace us with a people that would sin so that they would repent, so that they would know their Lord. In other words, God already had a whole universe, a whole multiverse of obedient toys. He made us so that there would be something in his creation that would be worthy of his love because it would have to choose him. Mm. 
And God is modeling in that, that real love is incompatible with compulsion. That's wild. My brain is exploding right now. It's your heart. It's your heart. My heart. Oh, see, I see. I'm like not even. I have to but you said brain. You didn't say mind. But I still think it's your heart. I still think it's the heart. I but it was like I was feeling it up here. But my heart is because my heart feels at peace. So that Come was the that. that was the situation. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm going to ask a question, but if you all in the audience would like to start lining up, you can raise your hand and um, I would highly prefer if you had your camera on so that we could see your wonderful faces. Um, But I understand that everybody's in a different time zone, so that's not fully necessary. Um, But if you have questions, uh, raise your hand so that you can be the one to ask it yourself. Okay, so my next question, Dr. Ware, as I process this uh, new interpretation, it's like it's it's so, you know, it's the language thing, though, because it's like we all use the same words, but they mean completely different things. (laughs) And we can sit there and talk about how white supremacy is the devil, but it isn't until you actually understand the origin story and then you actually understand this concept that the devil is this notion of I am better than you. And then you're like, oh, that's everything. That's like, that's like deeply, deeply rooted in And it's, our- and it's also, but it's not in us. That's also the beautiful part of it, right? Is that it's not fitri for us. It's not in our innate disposition. It is an insinuation. It's satanic. Because a creature that's made out of dirt isn't going to rank itself hierarchically against other creatures that are made out of dirt and say, I'm better than him. So it has to be a fundamental distortion of our true nature. It has to come from this force of evil. It is not actually inherent in our true selves. And that's part of why when we return to our true selves, we lose these things. Um, Shea Ahmed Obama, and sorry to interrupt, but I, I realized that he had a great not, uh, teaching no, on this. No apologies. So, so he says, he, he said that never forget that it was arrogance, istikbar, that brought low the cursed Iblis. And then he says, this is in a book called Masalik al-Janan, The Pathways of Paradise. He says, um, we seek refuge in God from both of them. In other words, we seek refuge in God first from arrogance and then from the devil. And then he said, the cure for arrogance, for istikbar, is to contemplate your body and how it was created. He said, you begin your life as a nasty drop of sperm. You live your life as a walking sack of feces and you end your life as a corpse, odious and rotting. You are all the children of Adam and it is from dirt that you were created. Hmm. The thing that ennobles us is not our origin. Hmm. It is the divine caress and the divine breath. Mm It is the nearness to divinity. It is the nearness to God. It is not our bodily substance or lineage origin. The devil had it wrong and he still got it wrong. And he's playing tricks on all of us. If we only knew. Mm. I also love um, this reminder of our body Um, and contemplation of our body in this context as the medicine, as the remedy. I think that, you know, so many, so many of us, if not most of us, um, 
have not so nice thoughts about our bodies or have this like way of thinking about our bodies, but it's so disassociating because it like, it, it negates the fact that our bodies are just like the house for who we are, for our, like a, for our spirit in this life. And it's doing its best. And it's, a, it's just here to remind you and to send you messages. I always think about that. You know, there's of course that, um, amazing book, the, by Dr. Bessel, uh, Van Koch, the body keeps the score. And I often <laughs> think about just like how, in what ways does my body send me the, send me messages? And it was funny because yesterday in my yoga practice, the instructor, when we were um, doing our final Shavasana, she specifically asked, is there any, um, is there any message that your body is trying to get through to you right now? Mm. And immediately I saw the words in my head, stillness is purification. Allahu Akbar. In the Bible, they said, be still and know that I am the Lord. When you are able to actually still the water inside, when you're mm -hmm. able to quiet the barking of your ego um, and you're actually able, where else do you think you're going to hear the voice of God? The, the, when God speaks in the heart, it's a voice that you don't hear from the outside of your ear. You hear it from the inside. Because it's a word that comes down into the heart and then has to come out through the limbs. Every other kind of knowing comes in through the limbs and then ultimately reaches the heart. But no, the, 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 the word hits the heart first and then has to come out and bear fruit um, in who we are. I want to say one thing about the body. And, and it's just, just before do. I... I so yeah. at one point I was over 330 pounds, morbidly obese you know, struggling with pre-diabetes um, and had gone through yo-yo diets in spite of the fact that I had been a college athlete, division one athlete, minor league baseball player as a young person, really, really struggled with my health. And I'll be blunt about this is that is that uh, this is one thing that I reproach the Muslim community about is not having, you know, a, a sound approach to fitness because we talk about our bodies in all of these, you know, denigrating, you know, dismissive ways as though they're, you know, insignificant. When I really started to, to examine the way that the Quran talks about the body and the way that the, so first of all, all of the prophets, peace be upon them all, were all physically strong and all physically beautiful because they were exemplars of everything that we can aspire to as human beings. Moses moved a stone that 10 men couldn't move. The prophet, peace be upon him, was neither tall um, nor short. He wasn't, uh, he was muscular, but not overly huge, but Nobody could get him to the ground in a wrestling competition because he was <laughs> the most because he was the most balanced. So he defeated wow. any wrestler that 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 came to him. Now, why am wow. I mentioning this? Because the in the Quran, God says that He made the human being on ahsana taqwim in the best of forms. Okay, and in authentic narrations, the Prophet peace be upon him. Uh, uh, this is another hadith Qudsi where he says. Indeed, God made Adam ala suratihi in his image. Now, people that are nervous about anthropomorphism will be like, oh, no, no, they mean what, what the prophet meant was, is that God made Adam in Adam's image, that Adam's image is distinct. His form is distinct from that of other animals. But that's not what the sentence grammatically is most likely to say in Arabic. What it's most likely saying is something similar to what you find in the Bible, which is where God says that he created man in his own image. In other words, in the divine image. Now, why is this significant? God doesn't 
have a physical body. Okay. I'm not an anthropomorphist. I'm not going to tell you that God has a physical body. Um, Exalted is he above that. But God says in the Quran that he has hands. He says in the Quran that he comes at you running. Right. So what do these things mean? Um, Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi, you know, uh, seeker and teacher and philosopher, he, he, put, he put a fine point on this. He said, if God says in the Quran that he has hands, then it is not anthropomorphism to say that God has hands. God said he has hands. He said, right. if God says he has hands, then his hands are real. Yours are the metaphor. His yours hands are real. Yours are the metaphor? Y- yours are the metaphor. <laughs> That's now, wild. Now, so, so now take this to the, to the next level is that God's, God's hands are certainly real. Okay. They're not metaphorical. Our hands, if anything, are metaphorical, but neither are they physical. God does not have a physical body nor attributes right. of a physical body. So God's essence that is somehow subtly reflected in the human body itself, this asana taqwim, best of forms, it's not a metaphorical essence, it's a metaphysical essence. It's, an, it's an essence that is outside the realm of physicality that is nonetheless yeah. somehow subtly mirrored in a way that only God knows in the very creation of our bodies and the way that they're shaped. And he also signals this when he says that I made you with my hands and then breathe of my breath into my, my ruh. Ruh literally means breath. Two different eyes in the Quran. And indeed, when I have fashioned him and uh, breathe of my spirit into him, my rule into him, then fall down before him prostrate. So humanity is made with this intimate caress, animated with this kiss of life and cast in the best of forms. Does God not love us? Thank you. Is... Yeah, Sheila in Montreal said, mic drop. Um, No, before the mic drop, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, The question I have before we get into the Q&A is a very simple one, and you already shared a little bit, but I would love to just intentionally ask, what is a question that you are currently asking yourself? Uh, I think that the question that I'm currently asking myself I think that I, I think that I already gave you the truest answer. Um, so this okay. will help us get closer to the time. The truest answer is that I'm currently asking myself, really, when is humanity going to wake up and, you know, understand how precious every last human being is? Right. And so but the way because I mean, literally the investment that God has in every single individual human being is greater than the investment that he has in all of the rest of creation, right? Mm-hmm. Indeed, I have ennobled you, child of Adam. Like w- human beings are incredibly valuable, have inestimable value in the sight of God. And when are people going to wake up to that? But the way that that manifests for me practically is in the question that I already told you, is that mm-hmm. I, I do wake up in the morning and ask myself, what can I do today to be of service to humanity's spiritual and social liberation? So the liberation 
liberation from internal and external oppressors. And that might mean any of those four principal elements of the human being, right? It might be that today is more spiritually focused, you know, that it's about dhikr and it's about salawat and it's about the connectedness and the nourishment of my spirit. It mm-hmm. might be that today is about maintaining my sound bodily health and restoring this not so best of forms back to its best of forms. Right. Um, and, and taking care of this sacred vessel, um, you know, mm-hmm. that it might, you know, mean that, that, that I unplug for 90 minutes and spend, you know, that time at the gym, you know, uh, conditioning or spend a little time driving across to the grocery store that has the fresh, um, you know, uh, food. Um, it might mean that that day it's the heart more than anything else, which might mean that there's new knowledge that I need to find because the heart is the place of understanding, or it might mean there's like emotional healing, you know, that, that I need to do, or it might be the soul and the soul in traditional Sufi cosmology. This is one of the things that can be reproached for is it often talks about the annihilation of the soul, basically like ego death. Right. But the Quran doesn't talk about the soul in that way. The Quran does talk about the soul as commanding towards evil and then it needs to be redeemed. But the Quran talks about the purification of the soul because you can't kill your soul. You're going to need it. And it's a part of you. But what you have to do is you have to purify and wean it from bad habits and give it new nourishment. And the way that the soul finds its nourishment is very often in creative expression because our individual creativity and our individual life path that made us who we are. This is part of how God expresses his infinite creativity is by creating all of our individual proclivities and life circumstances. So giving expression to our own individual creative capacities, whether those are musical or literary or artistic or whatever they are, that's how you wean your soul off of things that are harmful towards it um, Mm -hmm. and replace it with nourishment that allows it to grow. Like, you know, that's where soul music comes from. It's where soul Mm -hmm. food comes from. Like it comes from, you know, a, a flawed, tortured, but ultimately redeemable and beautiful instrument. Right. And that's the place where we can process some of our pain, process some of our trauma and transmute it into something beautiful and durable and lasting that gives, you know, expression to eternal truths that God wrote just on us and nobody else. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. Ware. Podcast Node is an at-your-service production. Producers include myself, Adam Khafif, and Sara Isa. Editing by Nuran Morsi. The theme music is the song Thunderdome, Welcome to America by Portugal the Man. Extra gratitude and thanks to our storyteller, Dr. Butch Ware. Make sure you check out his courses and find him on social media. As always, at your service.